house of God, we come to one that um, probably is an attribute that most of us would really rather just kind of go past this one and do something else. Uh, We've come to the 18th attribute. Now, if you've been following along in in Pink's book, you will notice uh, very quickly that um, last week as we looked at God's love, we incorporated uh, three separate chapters in Pink's book, um, and that, that is why there's the difference between last week was the 15th, and then this week is the 18th, because we covered three chapters last week. But we come to God's wrath, and we have to wrestle with this particular attribute of God because it is an attribute of God. And I find it quite astounding, and this, when I say this happens almost weekly is an understatement, but how the Lord just kind of knits all of the separate aspects of the ministry here at Grace Covenant together. It doesn't mean this is the only place, but I see week after week after week that God knits things together in such a way that only He could do. If you were keeping up with... Um, probably one of the premier holidays in the state of Louisiana, you will know that uh, this past week that much of the state uh, celebrated Fat Tuesday and then Ash Wednesday. And you go, okay, well, what does that mean other than king cakes abound? (laughs) Well, it means we're coming into the Lenten season. As a matter of fact, Ash Wednesday was the first first day of Lent. Now, we're not Catholic, and we don't necessarily follow the, the liturgical calendar um, it, for the same reasons or with the same expected outcomes as our Catholic friends, but it is a good visual representation of the major high-water marks of each calendar year. And uh, if you've been paying attention, and I hope you have, that you will have noticed that the colors on the lampstand and upon the cross have changed from green last week, which is indicating growth, to purple this week and will remain purple until the week of Easter because this is to signify Lent or the preparation for Easter, the preparation for the Passion Week where we will meet together on several evenings during that week leading up to Easter in preparation for the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all a visual reminder for us that um, now, in this particular season, from now till Easter, we are to be preparing our hearts to receive the Savior. Not necessarily from a salvation standpoint, although that is true for some, but that we are contemplating and thinking upon the life and the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why today we sang songs about his majesty and about his suffering. We sang songs about his suffering last week, and we will continue to sing those types of songs, some familiar, some not, from now till Easter, in which at Easter we will change the colors on the cross and on the lampstand, and we'll sing songs of reservation, uh, reservation, songs of resurrection, and songs of joy and adulation and majesty for the resurrected 
Christ and on through the rest of the year. I just didn't know whether you had noticed these separate aspects of our worship in which we are observing the liturgical calendar by rep- representation of the colors that you see week after week here on the rostrum. And so we come to uh, God's wrath. All of that is tied into this discussion today of the 18th attribute of God, which is his wrath under uh, A.W. Pink's accounting. And so we need to understand God's wrath. And so I've entitled our time today, Why Should Anyone Not Fear God? Uh, I asked that question last week, why would anyone not love God when they see who God really is? And it's the same thought for our time today. Why would anyone not fear God if they truly know who God is? And I don't mean just the lost. The lost really ought to fear God. If you stand outside of the covenant of grace with God today, if you find yourself not having been saved, not been having been regenerated, not having received the gift of the Holy Spirit, then you really ought to be afraid because you stand in danger of judgment, as we'll see as we go along. However, judgment is not exclusively reserved for the lost. I think many times as Christians, as ones who have been saved, we forget this. Now, I want you all to understand something before we ever start. This is a statement of presupposition. This is a statement of first principles. As a Christian, we have been forgiven of our sin. Okay, you got that? As a Christian, I have been forgiven. You have been forgiven of your sin. As a Christian, you are no longer under the condemnation of God's wrath and judgment for your sin. Okay? That's the joy and the uplifting of the burden that, has, that goes along with salvation. However, I think many times as Christians, we forget God's wrath. We don't like God's wrath. We're very uncomfortable when it comes to God's wrath. It's like one of those conversations at Thanksgiving when you got in-laws in town, you just don't like talking about it, right? We don't like talking about God's wrath, but God's wrath is real. God's wrath is there. God's wrath doesn't stop just because I've been saved. Now, God's wrath has been transferred from me to the Lord Jesus Christ in that salvation experience, right? That our The wrath of God for our sin has been poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross, right? That's why he went to the cross. But I think sometimes we mistakenly think that God's wrath upon our sin stops once we have been saved. It doesn't stop. It gets transferred, but God's wrath is still very real and is still being poured out upon sin. That warning is the basis of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, which is our text today, in which the writer warns us about this um, blasé faire view of sin. So let's read what uh, the writer has for us in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy 
on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's God. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Did you catch that? Now let's not overlook that phrase. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Father, we thank you for the day that you've given to us, and we continue to praise you, Father, for the songs sung and the prayers prayed and the word already read and delivered today. And we ask, Father, that they have been a proper preparatory to open our hearts and our minds to the truth that you have for us in your word. And so, Father, as we reflect upon these verses, of which we find them very uncomfortable and at times very distasteful, we ask, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive all that you have for us. As we solemnly and seriously consider your wrath. We thank you, Father. We praise you. We glorify you. And we ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the unknown. Where shadows linger and secrets whisper, the abyss beckons its depths unfathomable. And we teeter on the precipice of uncertainty. Our hearts race, our breath catches, and we grapple with the unknown. In those moments, we confront our own vulnerability, the fragile thread that binds us to existence. The hands that await us may cradle or they may crush, lift us, to a new height or plunge us into darkness. We are but travelers in this confused journey, seeking solace or reckoning. Yet fear need not paralyze us. It can propel us forward, ignite our resolve. For within those hands lie both peril and possibility. We choose how to navigate the abyss, whether to surrender or fight. We perhaps in that choice and perhaps in that choice, we discover our own strength. Catch that, our own strength. The flame that flickers even in the darkest corners. So let us face the unknown with courage, for it is in that fearful embrace that we find our true selves. Words written by the most preeminent philosopher of our day, being AI. It's a reflection of our society. It is a reflection of our culture. You see, being AI, you don't need to be afraid of it as an entity in and of itself because all it does is assimilate all the information given to it by men. <laughs> it's just a really big clearinghouse of or, or con consolidating all these different thoughts and ideas and putting them in one cogent expression. Now, I have found being AI to be a pretty good writer. He doesn't make many grammar mistakes, and his arguments usually hold together pretty well. But he doesn't come up with anything on his own. It is just what men have put into him. 
And this is a reflection of our society. I, I, I am sad to say that in some respects, I think it is a reflection of where we are as the church, not a church, not necessarily Grace Covenant, but the church in general, that, that we don't really know. It's the unknown. It, it's something that we can't put our finger on. And, and as we embrace this unknown, it might kill us, it might restore us, it, it might show us the way, it might drag us down into the ground. It is truly a confused journey of which we are trying to gain success in this journey by our own strength that we never knew was there. But if we go through the trial and face the flame, then we can find that inner strength. You see, at so many points, this description, this little poem stands in contradiction to the Scriptures. And we could make a message all of its own. And I, I included it in my introduction today because I thought it was quite interesting that as I uh, Googled, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what I actually input into being. This is what came out. You see, I think our world, our society, our culture of which the church is a part. Now, not as much of a part as it used to be and not as much of a part as I believe that it ought to be. The church is part of our culture. And the church has and has led the culture to focus too much, I think, on the love of God. Is God love? Absolutely he is. We spent an entire hour plus last week talking about the love of God. God is love. But that love is perfectly balanced against the wrath of God. The justice versus the mercy, right? The kindness versus the severity. The embrace as opposed to the discipline. All those contradictory, what seem to be contradictory or counter-opposed type Characters are in perfect balance within the Godhead. God is perfectly love while perfect, perfectly wrath. He is perfectly merciful while he is perfectly just and, and full of vengeance. You see, we, we miss that. And because love is something that we really like and we would really want to focus on, we give too much attention to it. And so my opening pro, um, proposition this morning as we begin in this text is Quite simply, as we become caught up in the love of God, we are in danger of forgetting the wrath of God. Now, you may be asking yourself, Rusty, why in the world are you saying that? Well, thank you. I appreciate your question. Here's why I am saying what I just said. Now, let me recap it. We get so caught up in the love of God that we're in danger of forgetting the wrath of God. I'm saying that because that is exactly the same message of the writer of Hebrews to the people upon whom he was writing. We find it here in chapter 10. There's also a corollary over in chapter 6 of Hebrews where he's talking about this idea of having once believed, falling away, and there's no sacrifice for sin. There's no restoration. Okay, that's here in chapter 10. It's also in chapter 6. For some folks who don't hold a sovereign position uh, on salvation. They're not sovereign grace people. Chapter 6 and chapter 10 of Hebrews really messes them up because they seem to think, oh, I can be saved and then I can lose my salvation. 
I can somehow be in right standing with God, and then for whatever reason, I'm not in right standing with God. And because they don't see themselves as the problem, they see God as being a very capricious God who is on again, off again, loves and hates all at the same time. But you see, the true understanding of God is that it's not that he's capricious at all. It's that he's balanced in his attributes. And we need to take inventory and full stock in full view in its most naked form, the wrath of God. Not that we do what we do because we're afraid of God, although I would argue that a healthy, healthy dose of reverence and fear of God is probably a good thing but that we understand what God is telling us. We understand that if we go on sinning, that it's because we've never been saved to begin with, right? And that's where we're at with this. And so I want us just to consider a couple things this morning as we get, not get caught up in the love of God so much that we're in danger of forgetting the wrath of God. And here's the first one that we are in grave danger if we continue to willfully sin once we have believed the gospel. Now, let me just clarify a point here before I go any further in this first statement. When I say believe the gospel, I am specifically speaking of an intellectual belief, okay? Because if we have truly been transformed by the gospel, right? If we are not the old thing but the new thing. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. If we're that new creation, the old things have passed, right? Doesn't mean we, we can't sin. We still sin in our saved condition, right? Would y'all agree with that? Maybe y'all don't, but I struggle with it. We still sin. But our heart is one of not wanting to sin. And when we are confronted with our sin, repentance, we turn from that sin, right? But if we just continually, as the writer of Hebrews says here, Go on sinning. We willfully sin. Actually, we have a heart of sin deliberately after hearing or receiving the knowledge of the truth. There remains no sacrifice for sins. There is no hope. Because we have heard the thing that saves us, we have come into an intellectual knowledge of the thing that saves us. We have been enlightened of, as to the thing that saves us, that is the atoning work of Christ, and we have rejected that as being foolishness. It is very much akin, I think, in large measure to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? The Lord Jesus said there is only one sin that cannot be forgiven, and that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So all of the lies, all of the adulteries, all of the thefts, all of the murders, all of the profaning of the Sabbath, all of the profaning of God's name, all of that can be forgiven but the thing that can't be forgiven is a rejection or a mocking of the very means of salvation, right? You follow me? And so if we have heard the gospel, if we have said we believe the gospel, but we have chosen to live in the world and of the world, <coughs> if we go on sinning deliberately, then there is no sacrifice for sin. We are guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, can you repent of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I think you can. I think you can. Can you mock the truth of the gospel all of your life, and then in that moment when God opens your heart to the truth of the gospel and you see it for what it really, really is, 
and repent of that blasphemy and ask for forgiveness, yeah, I think God, God can and will save you in that moment. So even if you are a blasphemer of the Holy Spirit and you've mocked the means of salvation in genuine repentance and coming to Christ, there is forgiveness, okay? So there's, as long as you're breathing, there's always hope, all right? And we'll get to a quote here by John Owen in just a moment that will help to illustrate that. But I don't want you to lose hope thinking that God is done with you. God is not done with you. As long as you're breathing, God is still there. You can still turn to the living God. But I'm not necessarily talking about people like that. I'm talking about people who say they're saved, perhaps have said a prayer, walked an aisle, signed a card, disturbed the baptismal font, and then go on sinning by choice, right? The writer of Hebrews warns, this is a warning, you are in danger, grave danger, of missing the gospel. You're in grave danger of falling under the sacrifice for sin. When we focus too much on the love of God, when we focus too much that God loves me, that God gave his son for me, that the son went to the cross and died for me and forgave me of my sin, and that's all I'm thinking of, and I will focus solely on the love of God, I am in danger of forgetting the wrath of God that is pouring judgment and wrath and condemnation out on my sin even after I am saved. The sin I perpetrate after I'm saved, God still pours his wrath out on that. The only difference is, is for the believer, that wrath is poured out on the Son, and for the non-believer, that wrath is poured out on them regardless of what their profession is. So you can say you love Jesus all day long. And the writer of Hebrews says, amen. But the writer of Hebrews also says, the proof is in the pudding. What does your life look like? Are you deliberately using his words? Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Turn there. Get a Bible, find one, turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Don't tell me you've memorized it because that's not true. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. When you are saved, you are changed. When you are saved, you don't speak like you used to. You don't think like you used to. You don't act like you used to. You don't value what you used to value. You don't pursue what you used to pursue. You pursue Christ and the things of Christ and the things that bring glory to Christ. That is the gospel truth according to the writer of Hebrews. And yet, we don't catch that. We don't think about that. We don't listen to that. We think, I'm saved, once saved, always saved. Doesn't matter whether I live like the devil or not. I have walked the aisle, signed the card, got, got baptized, and I'm all good, right? Right? Don't look at me like you don't understand what I'm saying. We all understand once saved, always saved, and the dangers of that, don't we? We need to listen to the words of the Scripture that tells us we cannot go on sinning deliberately. 
2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 21 tell us this. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better um, that they had never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them and then if you are familiar with 2 Peter chapter 2, you know that he says it is like the old proverb, the dog returns to his vomit and the pig loves to wallow around in the mucky mire, right? And I left that out because we're going to have lunch here in a little bit, and, right? But it, Peter puts it in plain English what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. You can't say that you're saved and still live like the world. Okay, I'm going to let that sink in real quick. You can't say that you're saved and live like the world. You can't. It is a contradiction in terms. The two ideas are mutually exclusive. God is pouring out wrath on sin and rebellion. As a Christian, one who believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior, we should be terrified by our sin, God's wrath on our sin being poured out on Christ. Shouldn't we? If we love Jesus, as the whole world says they do, would we want to inflict pain and suffering on the Lord Jesus himself? Now, granted, I know. I got it. I'm all for God's sovereignty. I'm all for God's uh, all-knowing, his omniscience. And I know that all of our sins, past, present, future, from our perspective, were placed on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, right? So as we survey our lives, I understand, and I got it. Starting right here, if I'm saved today, right, all of my sins that I perpetrated before I came to know Jesus, those sins of the past are put on Christ. Now, it was done at the cross. I got it, right, which kind of messes us up. Chronology is something in our Western way of thinking. We like to put stuff in a little box. But my sin, from my perspective of the past, okay, I got it. All the stuff I've done, that was put on Jesus on the cross, okay? I got it. But my sin that I'm committing right now, Either I'm trying to grow in my understanding of Christ and I'm still falling to sin or there's sin in my life that I'm ignorant of, I'm still responsible for that even though I'm, it's done in ignorance. That was done, that's put on Christ there in the past too, right? Yeah, okay, I kind of got that too. But all of my sin in the future was put on Christ on the cross, right? And that's where we start beginning to have trouble. And that's what I'm saying, that as a Christian I understand that my life now in Christ should have less and less and less sin in it. Would you agree? That the sin in my life as I'm growing and walking with Christ, as I am maturing in my faith, as the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control is beginning to take root in my life, then the sin that, that is still in my life really ought to be more sins of ignorance than sins of commission. So sin is sin. 
Rebellion before God is rebellion before God, whether I know it's a sin or not, right? Paul said, I didn't know coveting was a sin. The law came in, told me that I can't covet, and then I realized I've been coveting all over the place, right? That's what Paul says in Romans. So as I walk with Christ, those things that I know is a sin, I refrain from, right? And I, I got it. We all trip. We all fall. We all have stupid moments and still sin. I got it. But that should be less and less and less in the life of the believer. The sin in the life of the believer ought to be ones of, I had no idea that was a sin until I heard this message, and now it's a sin. I'm not going to do it anymore. But, you know, I've been doing it an awful lot because I didn't know it was a sin. <laughs> I'm going to throw one out there for you so that we can all get a concrete illustration and you're going to be mad at me when I do it, but it's true. Worry and doubt. Worry and doubt's a sin. And for a lot of people in evangelical life today, a lot of people in the church, they hadn't got a clue that worrying about stuff is a sin. They just think it's hereditary. They got it from their mother. They got it from their grandmother. They got it from their great aunt, wherever it came from. It's just how I was born. It's who I am. It's in my DNA. Hogwash. It's a sin. Worry is a sin. Well, Pastor Rusty, I never knew worry was a sin. What am I supposed to do? It's easy. Repent. Quit, quit worrying. <laughs> it's easier said than done. I got it. Right. Some of the ladies here are giving me some really mean looks right now. I'm sorry, but it's true. A couple men, too. We have to quit worrying. Because worry is an open declaration that I'm not trusting Christ in, in material things. That's what that is, right? But I never knew it was a sin. Now you're telling me it's a sin and i got to repent of it. Yeah, if you're a Christian, you're called to repent, right? Well, I'm going to do my dead level best to repent of my sin of worry. Okay, amen, and we'll help you. We'll walk you through the process. We'll show you what to do. There's all kinds of things that we can help you with, right? But worry is a sin, that's who I am, that's who my mama was, that's who my daddy was, that's who my uncle, my great-grandmother, and all of my forebears, they were all worriers. They all went to the grave early. They all died before they were 40 because they all worried, and that's just who I am, and I'm not going to repent. That is not the voice of a Christian. That's the voice of one who is deliberately sinning. That is the voice of one who has escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and yet are again being entangled in the things of the world and overcome them because they would just rather do that than repent. But Jesus loves me. Yes, he does. But he's called you to repent. You follow what I'm saying? Do you see how in our uniquely southern expression of evangelicalism that we get so hung up, so focused, so enamored, we perseverate, there's a nice big word for you, on the love of God, where that's all we see, that's all we think of, that's all we trust in, and we have actually overlooked the other part of God, his wrath, that he warns us is a very real thing. It's easy to do. In some respect, we're all guilty of it. We are all in need of repenting over this hyper 
focus on the love of God to the exclusion of the wrath of God. We're unbalanced in our view of God. John Owen. John Owen put it this way. He said, I will not judge a person to be spiritually dead whom I have judged formerly to have had spiritual life. Though I see him at present in a swoon as, all, as to all the evidences of spiritual life. Okay, so Owens is saying there's a person who made a profession, but their life is not matching up with that profession. They're still living in the world. Owens says, I'm not, I'm not willing to go as far to say that they're not saved. Okay, and he tells us why. And the reason why I will not judge so is this, because if you judge a person dead, you neglect him, you leave him. But if you judge him to be in a swoon, though never so dangerous, catch that, Owens realizes that that swoon, that not living according to your profession is serious, right? It's dangerous. You see all means of retrieving his life, so ought we to do one another and our own souls. So Owens is pointing out to us this truth that we are to be mindful of our not living according to our profession. We, we are to understand that this is a serious and dangerous issue and we are to pay attention to what the Bible is teaching us and not just walk out on it. Listen to what the scripture is telling you. Number two here. We're in grave danger if we continually willfully sin because God will pour out his wrath on sin including ours. Now, that might be a new revelation. You may think that once you were saved that God's wrath on sin ceased. I find that to be generally the attitude. Now, most people aren't theologically astute enough to express it that way. But I think in sentiment, as people kind of reflect upon their own salvation and the sin that they're perpetrating in their life in the moment, some of it being willful, that the idea is they just seem to think, well, I walked the aisle, I signed the card, I got baptized, I joined a church, and you mean God is still pouring out wrath on sin, on my sin? Yeah, he is. He is. At best, you are heaping up wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are saved. At worst, the Bible says you're heaping up wrath for the day of judgment. And what that means is, is that as you stand before the Lord God and give an account of your life, and no, make no mistake about it, every person, every last person ever conceived, catch that, will stand before a holy God and give an account of their life. You have a day in destiny. You have a day in court. You have a summons. You will sit and stand before the judge. You will have to give an account of all that you've said, all that you've done, all that you've thought. Every idle word, every idle thought, every deed will be held in the balances before the judge of eternity. Don't forget that. And those sins, that, that rebellion, that self-centeredness 
will receive God's wrath. He will pour out his wrath on someone, either you, outside of Christ, or on Christ if you're a believer. Now, I want you to think for just a second. I asked you last week to think of that person who hates you, all right? Y'all remember that at the end of the service last week? I asked you to think about that person who hates you. Oh, by the way, I hope nobody thought about me because I don't hate you. <laughs> I step on your toes sometimes. I step on mine too. So this week, I want you to think about that person that you love. Who is it that you love above all others? Okay? Who is that person that, that every time you're around them, you just feel like you're somebody special? Right? You just feel kind of warm and inviting. You know, you love that person, right? And I put it in, I put it in an emotional term so that we can kind of get a feel for it, right? I want you to get that person in your mind, okay? Everybody got somebody in mind? All right. Go punch them in the nose. Did it almost hurt when I said that? You, ever, you kind of get that achy feeling when, when you think of something so horrible, so despicable, so disgusting that it just, you know, you, you got that achy feeling? Did you get that achy feeling when I asked you to think of the one you love above all others and then go punch them in the nose? Did you get that achy feeling? I know you did. I saw the reaction. It's almost like a movie theater at a 3D movie. You know, one of those, right? Ouch, that hurt. <laughs> you would never punch the one you love in the nose, would you? You wouldn't even think about it. And yet, after we've come to the knowledge of the gospel as Christians, and we sin deliberately, even when we sin out of ignorance, we're inflicting that kind of pain and punishment on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as Christians, he takes the wrath of God for our sin. Right? Wasn't that our, was that not our hope in the day in which we were saved? The day in which the Holy Spirit was poured out upon us and we saw our sin in its fullest measure. We saw all the ugliness of our own sin and rebellion, and we were told, rightfully so, that we are forgiven of our sin through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have we not heard that? Did you not hear that at your point of salvation? That you were saved because your sin was taken and placed on Christ, right? The analogy that is used, and I think it's a proper analogy, is that yours, you've got a robe on. All right, or you got a jacket, you got a coat on, right? It's pristine, it was pristine white at one time, but now it is covered with filth and mud and dirt and vomit and all kinds of just disgusting, gross things. And you're wearing that jacket in its filth. And in that transaction, when your sin is forgiven, but transferred to the Lord Jesus Christ, the analogy, the illustration goes... Christ is standing right beside you, and not only is his jacket that he's wearing pristine white, I mean, it's glowing white, it's shiny white, it's got this most beautiful kind of 
iridescent look about it because it is pure. There is no defilement in that jacket whatsoever. And the transaction is simply this, that when Christ saves you, that righteousness of Christ, which is the white jacket, he takes it off. You take off your filthy, nasty jacket, which is your sin. Christ puts your nasty jacket on. You put Christ's pristine white jacket on. And when you stand before God, God doesn't see you in your sin. He sees that pristine white jacket from Christ put on you. So God deals with you with friendly terms. Why? Because are you by nature a good person? No, by nature, you're just a lost scoundrel, but you happen to be wearing the white pristine jacket of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God looks upon you as his son. The righteousness of Christ is so effective that when it is placed or imputed on the sinner, that that righteousness is what saves them in the sight of God. But if you believe that, you also know the opposite is true, that as Christ stands before his father, with that vile, disgusting, dirty, soiled, abominable jacket that we were wearing, that he is now wearing, God doesn't see him, he sees the sin. And what does God do? He pours his wrath out on the sin, and it's Jesus that's wearing the sinful jacket. Does that make it a little clearer for you? The imputed righteousness of Christ given to us at the point of salvation the imputed judgment and wrath on sin that is given to Christ because it's not his sin. Did Jesus sin? No. It's your sin on him. It's imputed to him. And God pours his wrath out upon Jesus. And yes, all of that took place on the cross. That is true. But your sin today, your sin tomorrow, your sin in the future is just making that jacket that much dirtier, that much Viler. You're throwing up on that jacket every day. Now, have I made it stark enough? And Christ, in his willingness to the Father, oh, takes that jacket that you wouldn't even put on in a million years if it was somebody else's. As vile and nasty and stinking as that jacket is, Christ willfully put that on so that your sin would be atoned for. And you mean to tell me that as a Christian, you have liberty to keep on sinning, keep on smearing disgustingness on the jacket that you know Christ is going to put on in your stead and expect that God somehow is just going to ignore it because you're saved? Not a chance. Do you see what I mean when I say that we get so focused on the love of God that we ignore and overlook what the Scripture tells us about God's wrath? It's a real thing. It has real consequences. It was real condemnation poured out upon the Son of Man when he went to the cross for you. Verse 27 says, But a fearful expectation of judgment and fury that will, and that word will means to, is about to, consume the adversaries. 
Nowhere in Scripture does God say, I quit counting sins and I quit pouring out wrath on sin simply because I'm in covenant with you. Nowhere. I challenge you to try to find it in the Scripture. It's not there. What God does say for those who are saved is, I will pour, I will count your sin as my son, on my son, and I'm going to punish him. I'm going to pour out my wrath on him. I'm going to destroy him because of you. That's what he does say. That's the truth of the gospel. And we need to wake up, friends, and realize that we cannot go on sinning, nor should we go on sinning. It's bad enough that we got sin of ignorance in our life that, that is staining that same jacket that we were wearing. It's, con it's heaping condemnation on the Lord Jesus Christ. In our ignorance, it's, that's bad enough. But to go on by a willful choice to keep sinning just because you like the way it feels, just because it makes you somehow feel strong or important, it somehow medicates those things that you can't control, you're going to keep on sinning that way? After having received the knowledge of the truth, after having claimed the grace of God in salvation, right? Hebrews says that's not possible. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? The church is not going to escape wrath. We're not. It's poured out on Jesus Christ in our stead. So in a sense, we escape it that way. But God's wrath just doesn't magically disappear because of the gospel. God's wrath is poured out on Christ. So we better wake up and smell the coffee. Right? Right? Somebody wake him up. This is not one to sleep through. God's wrath upon our sin is a very real thing for the lost and for the saved. I'm in verse 28 now, item number two on your outline. We must understand that God will judge the sin of the lost world with impunity. That's the first thing that we need to see. Verse 28, if anyone has set aside the law of Moses, he dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And, of course, the lost are really quick to say, well, there's no witnesses against me. Wrong. Creation witnesses against you. The scriptures witness against you. The prophets witness against you. The church witnesses against you. And the Holy Spirit witnesses against you. I didn't count them, but that's four or five. You will not get to heaven as a lost person and say, I didn't know. The Father will look you square in the eye and says, yes, you did. Well, it's not my fault. Old as the garden itself, blame somebody else. Are you going to get out of that one with God by blaming somebody else? Seriously, you think you're going to get away with it? Do you get away with it here? You get in trouble? You get pulled over by a Mr. Policeman for driving too fast, and you say, it's not my fault. It's the guy in the back seat. He made me do it. Who's getting the ticket, him or you? 
It doesn't work here. It ain't going to work there. God will judge the lost world. God will judge the lost world. God will judge the lost. As we think about those people in our life that we know are lost, it ought to bring us to tears, shouldn't it? Well, they're good people. They may be. They never really hurt anybody. Okay, that might be true. They've done nice things. They've said nice things to me. They've been just good as gold. They're lost, and we know it. Morality and goodness and ethics, those are all man-made standards. They're, they're not, God doesn't recognize those. So the grandmother who bakes cookies for you at Christmas but is lost as a goose, she's lost. And she will stand before God and will be judged because she's lost. And that wrath that God pours out on sin isn't going to be poured out on Christ in her case. Right? Now, I picked the grandmother who bakes cookies at Christmas because we all love grandma who bakes cookies at Christmas, right? But she's lost. And God will judge her. She doesn't get brownie points for baking cookies. She doesn't get cookie points for baking brownies. She's lost. James 2, 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The one who has lived as nice as they may have been without repentance and confession and trust in the gospel Judgments without mercy, the Bible says. If that's true for the lost, and I think most of us would agree, I'm not going to go too deeply into this point, because I think most everybody here today would go, yeah, I mean, God's going to judge the lost. Even if we're one of the lost, we know that judgment's coming, right? Right? Perhaps that's what keeps you up at night. Perhaps that is the subtle, unsettled feeling you feel right now. That gnawing sense of discontent. That, that fearful expectation that things just aren't the way they ought to be and you can't put your finger on it because you won't go to the scripture to define it. You try to well, maybe I'm just not feeling well, or maybe I, you know, I'm worried about... You, you, the world puts all kinds of different explanations on it, but the reality is that it's inward conviction of the Holy Spirit. Even on lost people, they know it's not right. And you don't want to listen to what I'm having to say right now because you know it's true. Look, I don't care how many prayers you've said, how many aisles you've walked, I don't care if you permanently lived as a soaked prune in the baptistry. If 
the Holy Spirit hasn't changed you, you're still lost. You're actually in a worse case. You're, you're, you're one of what I call the religious lost. I got religion. Well, you remember what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees about religion, don't you? Oh, you scribes and Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs. Look good on the outside, but you're full of all kinds of death and uncleanness. Why? Because you haven't been reborn by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You haven't had your sins forgiven. Your sin is still on you. And the uncomfortableness is, is you know it. The rites and the rituals of men will not save you. They may be an aspirin that kind of minimizes the pain. And the longer you go living in religion, the greater that aspirin is and you get hardened. And pretty soon, you're, you're, somebody is saying, dude, you need to repent and believe the gospel. And you're saying things like, well, my grandmother did. And, and my family was a member of this church. And I went to this gospel meeting. And this guy preached this message. And I did this right or ritual. And, and I got baptized or I walked an aisle. And you're saying all this stuff about what you did once upon a time and you're completely overlooking the fact that what you're doing right now is deliberately sinning. We know lost people are going to be judged and you feel it when you're lost. Think back to those days, for those of you who, who have come into the knowledge of Christ, those who have been saved, think back to the days of your lostness. You knew something wasn't right. Right? Because we know that God is going to judge the lost with impunity. And if we understand that and believe that, which we do, then why would we think that God would do any less towards those who have claimed his grace? Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. This one doesn't make it into very many gospel presentations. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace. The writer of Hebrews asked the question, if God is going to judge the lost, why do you think he's not going to judge you? Have we been forgiven of our sin as believers in Christ? Yes, absolutely we have. Are we now therefore not under any condemnation? Because of Christ Jesus as believers? Yes, absolutely true. Promises of the scripture. But why do we think that God stopped pouring out wrath on our sin? Because he didn't. And if we're okay with just sinning and letting Jesus take the fall, mm, there's a problem there. You're probably not saved. But Brother Rusty, the evangelist, wrote my name in the back of my Bible and said, if the devil ever makes me doubt whether I'm saved or not, all i got to do is come back here to the back of my Bible where, where he wrote it. On this day and day, 
Pastor so-and-so said, I'm saved, and he signed it, and I signed it, and there, we even had a witness. They signed it. You see, it's right here in the back of my Bible. I'm saved. I don't have to worry about sin. I don't have to worry about doing this. I don't have to worry about judgment because the evangelist said right here, I'm saved. Who in the world is the evangelist to tell you that? And if you ever told anybody that, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And I have told evangelists exactly that. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You have no authority to tell them they're saved or lost. Only the Spirit can do that. Don't rely on some idiot who wrote in the back of your Bible. Rely on the Spirit of the living God who changes you from the inside out. Where sin is an abomination to you. You don't want to sin. You hate to sin. You struggle with it. We all do. But you don't want it. And you certainly don't love it. And you certainly wouldn't go about doing it and let Jesus take in the fall for it. I'm sorry. I'm just... There's so many who don't know. Who think they're okay and they're not. I don't want anybody in the sound of my voice to wind up before Christ saying, well, I was expecting you to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, and all I heard was depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I don't want that. God will judge sin, even ours. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul gives us an indication of this. He teaches us this. This is something that we have to be mindful of. This is 1 Corinthians 11 is the, the chapter on the Lord's Supper, right? And there were people in Corinth who were not taking the Lord's Supper properly. They thought they were saved, and they were still living like the world. Right? Y'all do know that, right? The historical context of 1 Corinthians, the, the book that we have just spent over a year going through in Bible study on Sunday mornings, the biggest problem they had was they thought they were saved when they weren't. Because they were living like the world and calling themselves Christians. Right? That book, at one of the most solemn instances in the life of the church, the Lord's Supper is one of the most solemn remembrances in the life of the church. That's why Christ instituted it. That's why Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, right? It's not just pizza party and roller skating. It is one of those instances in the life of the church where we have to stop and reflect on, on what Christ has done for each of us and, and why he did it and how much grace it took to save us because of our sin debt, right? And Paul gives us these words in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 20, through 29. 27 through 29. Paul says in confronting this erroneous understanding in the life of the church at Corinth, 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself so that when he eats the bread and drinks the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And Paul goes on to say, that's why some of you are sick, some of, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you have died. What in the world is Paul talking about? Judgment. Judgment. Paul is telling the church at Corinth, you're out of step with Christ. You're out of step with the Scripture. You're not doing it right. And they were doing all kinds of stuff, okay? And he says, you're not taking an inventory of yourself. You're not considering whether you're even qualified to eat of the supper. Did you know you have to be qualified to eat the Lord's Supper? Well, yeah, Brother Rusty, I know that. I have to be baptized. Yeah, but you got to be repenting too, right? If you come to the Lord's table with unrepentant sin in your life and you're not willing to repent, I mean, you're, no, I'm digging in my heels. I'm doing it. I don't care who says anything about it. I'm going to do it because I like it. Then you are bringing judgment upon yourself if you take that supper. If you eat that bread and drink that wine and you're doing it with unrepentance in your heart, you are heaping condemnation on yourself. Some of them, Paul said, are weak. Just not getting along like you ought to. Things just aren't lining up. You know, it's hard, okay? Some of you are sick. Well, what does sick mean? It means sick. Doesn't mean you have a deadly disease, although it might. It means that you've got maybe ulcers or migraines, or headaches, or you can't sleep well, or I don't know, any other of several, two dozen manifestations of a worried spirit born out of sin. And some of you have died. You mean to tell me, Brother Rusty, that God will kill people because they just won't get a handle on their sin? Uh-huh, that's exactly what I'm telling you because that's what Paul said. Ultimately, sin kills us all. But God is not going to let one of his saints go on sinning and be a bad example to younger folk. He will kill you. I'm not pulling your leg. It's serious. We've got to take, according to this passage, we have got to take an inventory of ourselves. And not just the big ones that are easy to see. Not just the, well, I haven't lied this week. Or I haven't watched pornography this week. Or I haven't done this this week. Or I haven't done that this week. What about the ones that you know is there, but you just don't want to deal with? The worries, the doubts, the anxieties, the fears, the angers, the bitternesses. The unrepentance in those small, quiet ways that nobody knows about. And because nobody knows about it, you think you can get away with it. What about those? Isn't that sin? Sin is sin. Yeah, Brother Rusty, but it's just a little white lie. It's sin. Isn't it? So... Of course, Nancy asked me this. She said, you haven't taught on this at the Lord's Supper here recently. I said, no, I haven't. Probably need to. Well, here we go. Right here. Good opportunity to do it. 
if you take the supper, now that you've heard this, if there's sin in your life that you just don't want to deal with or not going to deal with, don't care what anybody else has said, you're not dealing with it, and you take the supper, it's going to manifest somehow. And in conjunction with that, if, and I'm not saying it's always the case, don't hear me say this is 100% always the case, but could it be, I'm just asking the question, could it be that the physical illnesses that you are plagued with, no, I don't mean the sinus infection that you get because the pollen comes out. I don't mean that necessarily, but those chronic illnesses that you just are plagued with day in and day out that you just can't seem to get rid of, doctors don't really have an explanation for it. I think the scripture has an explanation for it. Sin. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but that's what the Bible calls it. Again, that's not everybody. I got it. There are some folks that are legitimately sick, and doctors know exactly what's going on with them. Although I wouldn't take the word of a doctor the first time. I'd want to get a second opinion, right? Wouldn't you? I love Tom Martin, bless his soul. He's with the Lord now, but Tom used to say doctors are only practicing medicine. Yeah. Could it just be that you struggle physically with whatever it is or emotionally with whatever it is or psychologically with whatever it is because there's something in there that you know is not right and you hadn't dealt with it? I'm just asking. So we come down to the end of this time today with this thought. Therefore, as a result of everything we've talked about up until this point, and I've just hit the highlights, okay? I've not gone exhaustively into any of this. We could. So therefore, we must approach God with a fear and reverence that he demands. Not that's just good. <clears throat> this is not about doing what's good. This is doing what is commanded. We're commanded to be obedient. We're commanded to repent. Do you really mean to tell me that you believe that when John said or Peter said, repent and believe the gospel, that that was just a one-time thing? Do you really think that those guys, the disciples and John the Baptist, when they, when they were preaching the gospel to the world, when they said repent and believe the gospel, what they meant was walk that aisle, say that prayer, sign that card, you did your repentance thing, now you're all good. Is that what they meant? Not a chance. If you go back and look at the structure of many of those texts, the structure of the texts themselves indicate repent, 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 keep on repenting, never stop repenting, keep on and keep on believing and growing in your belief. And the more you believe, the more you repent. And the more you repent, the more you believe. And the more you believe, the more you repent. And the more you repent, the more you believe. You see how that goes. There, one feeds right off of the other. And when I stop repenting, I stop believing. Amen or oh me. Probably didn't hear that at the last little revival you went to. You probably heard, God loves you, come receive his love. God does love you. That's why he's telling you the truth about yourself. <laughs> I think that's why he put me here today preaching a message I really didn't want to preach. 
We don't like it. But God loves us enough to tell us the true condition of our souls and what we need to remedy that, and that is approach him with fear and reverence that he demands. For we know, the writer of Hebrews says, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think we have taken God as our BFF a little bit too much, don't you think? Jesus is my homeboy. He gets us. No, he gets us all right. Do we get him? Psalm 50, 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The Psalms. The Psalms that are always preached at funerals when somebody died. The Psalms that they've got it in a little book for pastors so that when you go to the hospital, you can read a psalm to somebody. Right? The Psalms. The source of love and encouragement and feel good about yourself, right? Psalms 50, 22. Pay attention! Because if you forget it, there's nothing left for you. That song. Sorry, I just woke up every baby in the... That song. Mark this then. You who forget God, lest he tear you apart. Aesop's Fables tells the story of a little boy... No, not the one who cried wolf. That's another one. He was taking a bath in the river one day, and he got in trouble, and he started drowning. And I mean, he was drowning. It wasn't that he was pretending to drown. I mean, this little boy was fixed to go under. And as he's struggling to keep his head above water, a traveler walked by. And the little boy said, help, help, help me, I'm drowning. And the traveler began to chide him on how Foolish it was is to go swimming in the river by yourself. <laughs> and a little boy cried out. He said, you can lecture me later when I'm safe. But right now, pull me out of this water. As I read that, I'm like, that's us. We get the wrath of God all backward, mixed up, upside down, apply it in the wrong place. But you see, we have to really understand the wrath of God before we can fully appreciate the love of God. The love of God, devoid of the wrath of God, is just a teenage infatuation. Now, I've gotten in trouble by saying stuff like that in the past, so don't get mad at me. But you know what a teenage infatuation is. Driven by emotion, driven by feeling, ooh, she looks so good, ooh, he looks so good, I'd like to go on a date with them. Are you really interested in them? No, not at all. You just want to go do whatever you want to go do and get on with your own business. That love without wrath is a teenage infatuation. We just see God as something that makes us feel good, something that helps us along our way, and we're not really interested in changing. We just want a better life. But when we understand the wrath of God and that our sin is dealt with through the wrath of God, and that's a real thing, a serious thing, and 
Either we're going to receive God's wrath ourselves or we're going to keep on heaping wrath on Christ, whom we love. And we see that, then our life tends to change, doesn't it? We're not so much about the expediency of the moment. We're not so much about what makes me feel good or what helps me along my way or what might make life a little easier for me in this relationship or that relationship. When we see the wrath of God poured out on sin, balanced by the love of God in which he would do that for us, then we begin to change. Change? No, I don't mean two quarters and a dime when you give somebody a dollar. I mean, you're being changed. And that's what the gospel's all about. The gospel's about change. God is holy and you're not. And because you're not holy, you've offended God and you are at enmity with God, but there is hope for you who are at enmity with God because God has determined to make a way for you to be restored to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you will believe what I just said and let that change your life to where you're a new creature, not the old thing, then you can have life eternal. But you have to change. And if you're not changed... Now listen, if you're not changed, you're not saved. If you're not changed, you're not saved. The Spirit doesn't just show up and say, here I am, and nothing happens. You might not be seeing change quickly, okay, but is there some change? Are you growing in your change? Are you wanting to be changed? Right? Change is necessary. And if you're not changed, you should be afraid. You should be very afraid. Because God's wrath is real. Father, we thank you for the day that you've given to us. We continue to praise you for your goodness, for your mercy and your grace. And Father, we are so weak in this moment. Your word has just gone up one side and down the other. We really feel like there's nothing left. And the truth, Father, is there is nothing left because we had nothing to offer to begin with. But we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy, your love, that it's, even though it's uncomfortable and unpleasant, you've told us the truth of ourselves. And so, Father, we ask that in this moment that you would bring repentance, that you'd bring revival right here among your people in this place, and that, Father, you would change us. Father, we ask whether we have walked with you for many years or have not walked with you at all, that right now in this moment you would send your spirit and you would change us, each of us, and that we would understand what your wrath and your love are really all about. We love you, Father, in our weak and frail way, we pray that you would take that love and make it something worthwhile. We love you. 
We trust you. We honor you. And we ask these things in your name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we ask. Amen.